following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Looking forward to Hebrews, installment number two. Our plan today is going to be the same pretty much as last week. We're going to read through our section in the scriptures here, read through the entire section, and then I'll pray. And then we'll get started. I've asked Pietro to come again this week and and read to us. Um, Our section this week that we're studying, again, uh, the whole point of what we're doing is kind of taking a a four-week trip through this book. We're going uh, 60 miles an hour. But I think it's going to be helpful for us to look at the whole book, put pieces together, and understand how they they fit together. So the section that we're reading today is going to start in uh, in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, starting with verse 14. We're going to read all the way through to the end of chapter 7, which is uh, verse 28. So again, that's uh, Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 7, 28. So Pietro is going to read, and then I'll pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, just pray in these uh, moments that we have together that you would open up our eyes, that we would understand your word, that we would understand how it preaches your son to us, and that we would embrace our high priest and draw near to you. Because, because of your high priest, because of the one sitting at your right hand, we can say it is well with my soul, and we rejoice in that. Open our eyes, help us understand this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let me do a real quick review here of where we were last week. Um, just so that we, we're, we're on the same page, we're, we're going pretty fast. Let's see what our, our next slide here is. Um, what I've done is I've tried to put a slide together graphically, uh, visually representing the whole book of Hebrews. So that's what you've got on the top there. You've got a, a span indicating the whole, whole book. Last week we studied that first section there, uh, week one. Uh, on the bottom side, we're getting the week one, week two, week three, week four. So you're just seeing how I'm planning to, to preach through this book. Um, so the first section there was what we covered last week, verses 1, 1 through 4, 13. And uh, one, of the, one of the things I'm trying to help you do is, is, is get kind of some hooks or some frameworks so that if you were going to go study this again, you'd be able to understand where are some of the, the major pieces, major chunks. So like if you're going to study something, like study this part and understand this piece because this is a major thought for the audience, for, for the, the author of this book. So one of the things I said last week is that at the beginning, you have a quotation of Psalm 2, verse 7. And that's what we get in this first section, in, um, in the, right in there, in the, I think it's verse 5 of chapter 1. There's a quote uh, from, from Psalm chapter 2. God says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's the section we talked about last week. Last week, uh, the, the whole concept was God has spoken to us in his son. His son is this person who's been exalted at the right hand of God. He's better than angels because he's been exalted at the right hand of God, because of his power, because he's on high. Um, but he's also better than the angels in spite of the fact that he identified with us fully in his, huma- in, in his humanity and taking that on like, like, like us. So that's what we studied about last week. Um, this week, we're going to start the next major section in the book of Hebrews. Okay, so if you get this, there's two major teaching points through the book of Hebrews. 
First one is there, that section we studied last week. The next section is what we're going to study this week and the following week. So we're taking two weeks to study it, and the whole concept is Jesus is our great high priest. Now, one of the things the author does is in 1 verse 5, he starts and says, he's going to quote Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 and say, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Now he's going to turn right around in the section that begins today in chapter 5, verse 5, and he's going to quote the exact same thing. You are my son, today I have begotten you. But he's going to add something to it. We'll get there in a minute. But that's one of the ways he indicates, hey, here's my two main pieces that we're going to think about as we study who this person Jesus is. So I I obviously haven't uh, labeled that last section there, mostly because it's it's less of the the teaching time and more of the wrapping up conclusion and also partly because I'm still trying to decide the one word that will fit to help describe that last part. So uh, wait for it. That will be the week four. Um, anyways, that's our plan for what we're trying to go through. Um, but as we get into our, our topic today, think about for a second just the idea of a priest. Okay, so that's not common for us here. We don't talk about priests. We don't, I mean, we don't call Pastor Stacy a priest. Um, we don't have robes. Maybe that's some of you are familiar with that kind of thing. Uh, we don't have a lot of the things that you, you normally associate with priesthood. So that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. But we're talking about a very specific set of priest, priestly regulations and priests, etc. We're talking specifically about the priesthood that was ordained with the law given on Mount Sinai to Moses, to the people of Israel. Okay, so it's going to be some pretty technical heavy-duty detail stuff, very religious. And I get it, some of this is going to be a little bit unfamiliar. But, again, this author is taking what is established in the Old Testament and saying, that's great. Nothing wrong with that except that Jesus is better that and, and he's bringing us something new. He's going to, that's where he's working there. One, one other thought, just to help you understand this, ma- this next major section. The author is going to often, he does this repeatedly through the book, I'm, you are not even going to hear a half of what he uses with, uh, in order to bookend the sections that he wants to talk about. The, the fancy literary term is called an inclusio, where he uses a word, a phrase, or a set of words and phrases in one section, and then later he repeats it to, to tie, tie that section together. Let me illustrate again why I think this is important and how it helps us see the main chunk of what he's talking about. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read that really quick. It's the first section that, he, that Pietro read for us this morning. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then draw, I'm sorry, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, turn over to chapter 10. If we go to chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, the author says this, Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who, is, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, so I don't know if you noticed, but there's a lot of similarities in those. Um, so that's week one. Let's go on to the next slide there. Uh, here we have, I just graphically represent it here in, in, a, in just a quick chart here of what we have in Hebrews chapter 4 and what we have in Hebrews chapter 10. We have Jesus, the great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. Uh, he's named as Jesus. Then the author says, let us hold fast our confession. Let us draw near with confidence. And then and in chapter 10, we have the name of Jesus. We have a new and living way to the holy places in the heavenlies. Um, we have this great high priest. Let us draw near then with clear, clean consciences and let us hold fast our confession. So one of the things that he's doing is he's taking these concepts. He begins this section with these items and then he ends this section with these items. So what he's doing is bookending them and saying, look, this is one section. This is a major piece that I'm trying to study or trying to talk to you about. So if you're going to study this, put these things together. We don't have time to study all of that today, but we're going we're gonna, to, Lord willing, study half of that. All right, so that's just kind of a framework piece there for what we're studying. Again, the whole point of doing our study here is that we're, we, don't, we want to avoid just looking at one verse and spending so much time there that we forget all of the whole structure of the book. Okay, so this section here, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, is, serves as like a hinge point. Okay, so this, this is taking us from where we've been and introducing this new subject. First, uh, the author sounds the call to hold firmly to the faith we possess. And I hope that you've caught on to that as we've passed through that. We've, we've heard that phrase several times in, in a couple different ways of saying it, but he's basically saying, hold fast, stay true to this. This is a repeated theme, and, and as you're going to see by the end of the book, this is one of his main points in the book. How do we know that? Because he says it so often. He's repeating himself because this is important. This is his, this is his message. Um, secondly, we're transitioning. Uh, Jesus identifies with, he, Jesus points, the author points to Jesus' identification with us in his humanity and says that this high priest has been tempted like we have been, though without sin, and thus can empathize uh, in our weakness. So on the one hand, he's looking back. He's ident Jesus is identified with us, but he's looking forward. Jesus, because of that, is able to be our, our great high priest. Um, next, he mentions that Jesus' position is in the heavens, uh, which reminds us of his exaltation at the right hand of the Father from chapter 1. And fourth, uh, the author picks up the idea of Jesus as our high priest again, which he mentioned in 2 verse 17. That was the last time he mentioned that. Um, uh, and then, I'm sorry, he also mentioned that in, in chapter 3, verse 1, uh, but then took time out to exhort the people to hold their confidence firm to the end. Okay, so in this first section, once we jump, we jump into chapter 5 here, the main idea initially is to show that Jesus is a high priest. And he's going to do that by showing that he's similar to other high priests. Okay, later he's going to show how he's different. But initially, he's going to say, okay, I know I've talked about who this person is. He's at the right hand of God. He's the son of God. <clears throat> you may not think he's really a priest. Like, it doesn't sound initially like he's a priest that you're familiar with because he's so different from 
these other priests that you're familiar with. But he actually is a priest. Um, let's see. Try to orchestrate this. There, there's actually kind of, a, if you if you will, there's a there's just this pattern. We've we've talked about it before. It's called a chiasm, um, where it just talks about one item and then another. Uh, in this case, there's three items, and it kind of works backwards through them. So if you look at this slide, you'll see that, first of all, a high priest in general was somebody who was set up and called by God, and he represents the people before God. Secondly, then you see that this person is, in general, a priest is supposed to offer sacrifices for sins, his own, but also the people's, uh, and then he's called by God. Uh, to be in that position. And then as you work through this section again, Hebrews 5, 1 through 10, we see that, that Christ is, is also that. Christ has been called by God. And this is where we get that quotation of, of Psalm chapter uh, 2. Sorry, i got to find my place here. Um, chapter 5, verse 5, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Uh, but then he adds another phrase here, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is... Uh, the scriptures testifying to us, God is calling here Jesus and calling him a priest. Um, Jesus also offered up prayers and petitions, and then he became the source of eternal salvation. He's a high priest like Melchizedek, and the implication there is uh, for eternal salvation is that he's there representing um, the people before God and able to provide that for them. So that's kind of how you work through the, this first section of, okay, Jesus actually is a priest, and he's like Melchizedek. Uh, but that's, that's uh, the statement that God has made about him. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So on the one hand, what we have is, okay, Jesus is a priest. He's like other priests. He's been called by God, etc., and he's in this, this office. But they also have this, this interesting statement here in verse 5 and 6 that he's the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Um, so for now, it's enough to know he's a priest, he's like other priests. But as we get into this, we're going to see that he's going to unpack the whole idea of you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is a quote from Psalm 110. But if you don't get anything else, get this about Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest, but he's also a king. Okay, so there's the unification of these two offices. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Because what happens for the author is the author gets to the brink of, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, who is like Melchizedek in that he is a priest. And we already know he's a king because of what we talked about earlier. So, Jesus is like Melchizedek in that he's a priest king. And I want to talk to you about it, but I can't. There's something in the way. He begins what ends up being quite a long um, tangent. It, I mean, we can use the word tangent, but it's not a tangent because it's completely relevant to what he's saying. But he moves from, I want to tell you about this person, to I need to instruct you about a spiritual issue in your own life. <clears throat> First, he chides them for being uh, sluggish hearers. This is how the author starts his warning to 
this, this group of people. And see, we've already seen this happen. We've already, even in the first few, four chapters that we've studied, we've seen the author go from, hey, I want to tell you about this person, Jesus, to, yeah, but then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to preach to you, and I'm going to tell you, you better live in light of this. You better change how you're living. You better take this seriously. So in the first chapter, we, or chapter two, is don't drift away. Because of who Jesus is, don't drift away. Chapter three, and then into four, there's those uh, five exhortations about don't let yourself have that unbelieving heart. Um, consider Jesus. Think about him seriously. Uh, work really hard to enter God's rest. This is one more of these sections. So he's on the brink of telling him, hey, I want to tell you all about Jesus. But then he gets to this section. It's a pretty serious passage that he starts in on. I mean, he, he's going to take them to task for basically being um, bad listeners or really people who don't respond well to his message and, and also immature. So on the one hand, there's, some of this is rhetorical in the sense that he's, he's challenging them to rise up, to rouse themselves and say, no, I'm not that person. I'm not the person who's going to hear your words and simply just ignore them and not respond. So there's a rhetorical aspect here, but there is also some sense of truth to these words. Like, they are not hearing well. They are immature, and they need to move to maturity. He cites uh, two indications here that they're immature. They should be teaching others, but they're still in need of being taught the basics. And number two, they are, they're infantile because they have no skill with the word of righteousness. Or to put it slightly differently, as in verse 14, they have no ability to discern between good and evil. So the mature, on the one hand, do have skill with the word of righteousness and do have the ability to discern between good and evil. The ESV states that the way they put it here is that the mature have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. Uh, the idea behind constant practice is, is not so much the process as the result. So, for example, if we're talking about somebody who goes to CrossFit, we're not, we're not talking about somebody who, uh, if you were using this word, you're not talking about the fact that he goes and goes and goes and goes. Go, you, you're talking about the fact that he is fit or she is fit because of all that going and doing that CrossFit, etc. And that's what these saying. Th this author is saying these people are not. They are not fit because they don't have that practice. They haven't been exercising their abilities with the word and with the gospel. So even though, on the one hand, in, in verse 12, he says that they need to go over the basics again, we see that when he gets to chapter 6, he's actually, verse 1, he's actually going to say, well, but I know that ultimately, that's not really what you need. You don't need us to go over that again and again. I'm actually just going to go ahead and, and start talking about this truth, these, the truths that I want to talk about that are going to get us to maturity. He wants to move past the foundational basics and go on to the maturity. On, on the negative side of these things, he says that in order to press on to maturity, he doesn't want to keep talking about these things like repentance, faith, uh, washings and laying on of hands, resurrections, and eternal judgment. Um, I, I was able to preach on this in November, 
and so I don't want to repeat myself completely, but at the end of the day, I, I think it's striking here in this list that there's not things that are distinctly Christian in the sense that some of these things are Jew- I mean, you could You could look through all of these things and say all of these come from the Old Testament. Now, they can be applied for Christians, but they could also be applied for Jews. So I, I think in the context of this book, one of the things this, this author is doing is saying, let's not talk about these things that are, that are okay for both camps. Let's not dwell on those things as if there's some, some, some lowest common no- denominator things that, that are okay for all of us as a society to talk about. Let's move on to that, which is distinctly Christian. Let's talk about Jesus in these things. Um, At the end of the day, the author is not suggesting that there's some sort of like, okay, you started here and you learned these things about Christianity, but now you're going to develop by learning this whole new set of information. Rather, he's saying, go to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus, which he's going to get to soon talk about his life and his work, his, its implications for our lives. We want to go deep in the gospel by applying it and its truths to, our, to all the details in our lives. In other words, just massaging it into our life to practice the gospel. That's maturity here. So again, there's not this sense of, there's this advanced information you need. It's, you need, going back to chapter 5, verse 14, you need practice in this, these gospel truths, specifically about Jesus. Um, with the analogy of the guy at, at CrossFit, it's like, don't go to the CrossFit and take the orientation class over and over and over. Or, you know, Planet Fitness's orientation class. Don't do that over and over and over. Go start using the machines. That's what he's talking about here. We want to get to that point where we're, we're using the gospel. And that's what he's, um, he's exhorting these people to do. Okay, so now we're getting into some pretty, some pretty tough, uh, tough stuff here in, uh, in verses 4 through 12. But again, let's get the big picture, and then we'll go into some more, some more details here. The big picture is that first he presents the warning that certain, these people, and he describes them, are impossible to restore to repentance. Then he gives an illustration in verses 7 through 8. And then 9 through 12, he's going to give a positive word of encouragement uh, to, to kind of conclude his, his ideas here. But he's starting with the conjunction for, and what he's really doing is he's trying to show that what I'm, what I'm about to talk to you about is important because of what I've just said about maturity. We need to move on to maturity. But there's a real danger that some of you may not move on to maturity. The problem is not that you're going to stay in that place of immaturity. There's the danger for that is that those people are going to not stay in the place of immaturity. They're actually going to just fall away. So that's why this is serious. There's not this sense that you can just do whatever or just kind of stay in neutral and stay where you're at. That's not really an option here. The author wants to talk about a group of people who initially he, he states, these people cannot be restored again to repentance. These people are described in um, five parallel statements. They, they are people who have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. 
They've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the world to come and then have fallen away. So the author is telling us here that it's impossible for God to restore these people to repentance. Um, obviously impossible here, we're talking about God, uh, does not mean he's incapable of doing this. It's just that he's God. I mean, he can do anything he wants, but it's, it's similar to what he's going to say in verse 18. God um, is, is impossible for God to lie. In both these instances, we, we see that I mean, God is refusing to do this. He's not going to do this because it's against his character to do so. I think we should see, too, that these people that he's talking about here are not people who just, um, I think accidentally is a good word. These people aren't people who just accidentally happen to fall away. Apostasy that we're talking about here is the act of abandoning, um, in this case, particularly a person, uh, the Son of God that we've talked about uh, last week, walking away from Christ, the community of Christians and God. One author says this, to abandon one's loyalty to Christ is the same then as it concludes, the same as crucifying him all over again or standing and ridiculing and deriding him as he dies on the cross. The author indicates that the reason it's impossible for God to restore them is because they are crucifying again the Son of God. The sacrifice of the Son of God, um, again, notice the name here, is the title of the exalted one sitting at the right hand of God. That was a once-for-all event and can't be repeated. They're rejecting this person. They're putting him to public disgrace. Um, They are deriding this person. And he concludes that for such people, God will not restore them to repentance. Okay, so the next section we have, we have an illustration of a plot of land. And it's important for this next illustration, verses 7 through 8, to understand this is the same plot of land. Okay, God sends water to it. God nourishes it. And there's two responses. On the one hand, one, in one response, the land produces fruit. It, it flourishes, and God blesses it. On the other hand, the same land has taken that water, that nourishment, and has turned it into weeds and thorns. And God curses that. Um, In the first, first section here, there's a, the author has been speaking in the second person in his warning. Or I'm sorry, he's been speaking in the third person, these people. But now at the end, um, when he wraps up this section in verses 9 to 12, he's going to start speaking in, in the uh, second person. But I'm convinced of better things for you. So it, it kind of softens the blow a little bit, but it definitely leaves the, with the sense of uh, this is not some theoretical possibility that you know, that, that's not really a, a problem for you. He, he leaves with, this is something that you should seriously consider. But I'm convinced of better things for you. I'm convinced of things regarding salvation. And he points back to the past, to the, some of the things that he's seen them experience and go through in the past that convinces him that God will continue working in their hearts and lead them on to persevere and, and receive salvation. Okay, so that's a quick walk through this section. The, uh, the problem is that there's just so much controversy surrounding this passage um, and, and the statements that are made about these people who seem to be genuinely converted. 
So before we finalize that, let me walk through one more reading of this, this text just and see if, if this helps us understand both contextually and, uh, and literarily what the author is trying to do. So he gives these, these statements here about these people. Uh, these people um, have been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, in light of what he's just talked about in, in chapters 3 and 4, he talked about the wilderness generation, the people who came out of Egypt. Moses led them out in the Exodus and then brought them into the wilderness. And God says that those people did not enter into his rest because of their unbelief. Okay? Now, if you go back through the Old Testament, you can find statements that reflect these four statements that were true of the Israelites back in that wilderness generation. For example, the wilderness generation was given a pillar of fire by night to light the way. Okay? Um, so in a, if you want to say that, you could say they were enlightened in that way. The Israelites were also given the bread from heaven in the wilderness. Well, they ended up calling it manna, which just meant, what is it? It's... They didn't understand what it was, but God provided for them. They were able to taste that. The Israelites also experienced the words of God and saw the signs and wonders that accompanied it, uh, like all, not only with Pharaoh, but then also uh, for themselves on Mount Sinai. Now, the Spirit was also active in their midst. Um, if you look at a passage, it, read through uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, there's another sermon uh, that the priests in Nehemiah's day gave to the people to encourage them. And in that sermon, he rehearses some of the history of the Israelites in the Old Testament. In that, he, stays, he says that uh, there's the mention of God giving that generation his good spirit to instruct them. So what I'm saying is that we should read the description of these people who who fall away and can't be restored, we should read that description in light of the wilderness generation that's just been described in chapters 3 and 4. So in, in the language of chapter 6, the people in chapters 3 and 4 in that wilderness generation had fallen away. They had tasted all those things, they had experienced the, the life of God, uh, the life in the community of God, but then they'd still fallen away. God says in chapters 3 and 4, he swore in his wrath, they shall not enter his rest. It sounds very similar to me, like Hebrews uh, 6, verse 4. If we look even later in the book, we're also going to find an instance when Esau is said to have, he sold his birthright, but later he wanted to get it back he even was on the point of tears, but he, there was no place for repentance for him. So he was not able to come back and get what he wanted. So there's, we tend to look at Hebrews chapter 6 as if this is like an isolated event of somebody, you know, this is just really strong warning, kind of comes out of the blue, and, and he says, hey, be very careful because this is, uh, this is something that could happen to you. You could fall away. And really it's something that we see throughout the book of Hebrews. If you also look at the end of, in the illustration about the land, you see that there's a common idea that you would find in Deuteronomy 
as the, as the people are about to enter the land. There's this whole ceremony where they talk about the blessings and cursings of the law. If they obey, the people respond verbally and say, if we obey, yes, God will bless us. If we disobey, yes, we understand God is going to curse us for not living up to that law. So I think that's very much in mind here. The, the author is consciously drawing on the wilderness generation and their falling away. He's drawing on the Old Testament and the, the, the people in that position where there's this very real sense of, yeah, God is going to bless you if you obey him. God is going to curse you if, if you don't obey him. So I think when it comes down to it, what the author is really picturing here in, in chapter 6 is uh, various responses to the word like we would see in, in Mark chapter 4. Stacy's gone through that. Um, there's a seed that's said to have fallen on the rocky soil. And the seed responds and grows, but it doesn't really have any root. And so get this, uh, it endures for a while, but then persecution or tribulation arises and it falls away. And that's, uh, I think that's exactly what's being depicted here in the book of Hebrews. These people are fa being faced with the temptations, uh, the, like the trials, the tribulations, the persecutions, where it would be easier for them to just go back to Judaism. And the author wants his people to hold fast and, and not fall away just because of these difficulties. So uh, the question that we get here is we get... You know, we come to this, this, a passage like this, and people are asking, well, can we lose our salvation? So I want to talk about that, that briefly here, but I think we have to understand first what this book is saying as a whole before we go to other books, other parts of the New Testament to understand theologically what's happening. So let's listen to his voice first, and then then sorted out with the rest of scriptures. That's important. We have to do that. But let's listen first to this, per, this author. So what would the author of this book say to that question of, can you lose your salvation? What, but what's his unique perspective? Why is he sharing this information with us? Uh, what's his, his contribution to this question and theology in the New Testament? Another question to ask is, is this even... The question, can you lose your salvation, is this even a right question to be asking based on this book and what the author is doing? I think the first place to start is to realize that the author is actually probably not interested in answering this question. This is a question we're bringing to it that he's not necessarily interested in answering. If he does answer this question, I think he's going to do so by analogy, but not directly. One of his main objectives is to get his audience to hold fast to their confession, to hold fast to Christ. It does him no good, frankly, to say, hey, look, you really need to hold fast to Christ, but don't, really, don't worry about it because you're saved anyways. Like, you're, really, you're secure in your salvation. Do you see how that like, completely defeats his argument? The point is not, hey, you made a confession. It's time to just go about your business Whatever happens, it doesn't really matter because you're saved anyways. That's not the point. The point is, no, it does matter. It matters very, very much. Assurance of salvation was never a doctrine used to just comfort ourselves into complacency. I now, let me say something here. Uh, um, 
the author of the Hebrews, if you were to ask him this question, I think he would respond with, how can you lose what you haven't yet fully attained? Okay, so now hear what I'm really saying. The author is not here denying that you are saved now. That's a foundational bedrock of Christianity. When we trust in Christ, we are saved. But there's an aspect that we are not fully saved yet. We're, we're awaiting that final salvation. And this author in particular has that, that final salvation in view. Okay? So when, if you were to ask him, can you lose your salvation? He would say, I think, I don't think you have fully attained it, so you can't really lose that. I think at the end of the day, though, it's probably best, you know, again, so we understand what this author would say, but then we bring theology, the rest of the scriptures to bear on this question. And I think that we're going to conclude that such people were probably never saved to begin with. Um, It's like the people in the wilderness generation. They're the example right at hand. They experienced God and his blessings, but they didn't enter his rest. They sure looked like the people of God, and they experienced a lot of his blessings, but in the end, they didn't enter. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is a really controversial passage. It's challenging. And theologically, that's where I think we end up, that we don't believe you can lose your salvation. So there is assurance and there is comfort in that. But before we just run to that and and just think only of that, don't defang this guy's argument by saying, okay, well, you can't really lose your salvation. No, take very seriously the need to pursue Christ until the end. I think the challenge for us as Christians in America is not, is not that we're facing persecution that is going to cause us to abandon Christianity uh, per se. I think the problem that we have is we're going to be more like what it talks about in chapter 2, that we end up just drifting away. So apostasy for us may not look like us making some radical break with Christianity, at least initially. But the path to that could be a slow drift away. So I think as we finish today, I think we need to Take that seriously. I think the American church um, probably is in great danger of drifting away um, because we, we've we've ended up emphasizing so much. Hey, just make a decision, just just pray a prayer, and you're good. You know, you you've got your ticket to heaven punched, and that's not what this is about. We're talking about the Son of God who's sitting at the right hand of God. We're talking about somebody who has been anointed as the, the, the supreme ruler of the, the cosmos that will one day return and judge sin. So we really need to take that seriously. We need to take seriously, hey, what am I going to do this year to pursue Christ? What is it going to take for me to avoid drifting away? I know, I, again, I said that last week, but, but this is not, there's no response to this message that is like, okay, we'll just go home and do something for five minutes and you're done. This is, 
think about who Jesus is and live the next month, the next year, the next 10 years. It doesn't matter that you're faithful today, that, that you're faithful through the end of this year. It, it matters that you're faithful to Christ, that you hold fast your confession to the end of your life, to the end of your days. You're not going to do it again. I mean, I said this last week. It's the same, basically the same message. Like, you're not going to do that on your own. So I, I'm done. I just, I want to exhort us. Hold fast to Christ. Pursue him. Think about and talk about with your brothers and sisters in Christ. What does that look like for you? How are you going to do that? The common statement is if you, if you fail the plan, you're planning to fail. Again, this is not do it by your own bootstraps and just like pick yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and just plan your way through this. No, by the grace of God, this is something that he's got to do in us. But we are going to cooperate with the, what the Holy Spirit is doing by making plans to seek after Christ, to seek after him this year. All right. Uh, yeah, we're done. We've gone over. Uh, we didn't even get to chapter 7. Um, we'll get there next week. But thanks for listening. Let me just close in a, in a quick word of prayer. God, please help us to hold fast our confession of, to you. Help us to see that you are so gracious, that you're so beautiful, that, that no one else has the words of life, that we must cling to you. God, we're not tempted to run from you because we're, we're scared. We're just enamored with so many other things. Fill our hearts and our, and our, our minds with, with the vision of who you are. Help us not to drift away. Amen.